At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. What does it reveal about a people when their national hero is a poet? For the Scots, that means a love for language, music, and heritage. Each year on January 25th, People in Scotland pay tribute to their national bard, Robert Burns, who was born on this date in the year 1759. His legacy continues to reach far across the globe. Bob Dylan said his greatest ever source of inspiration was Burns' poem, A Red, Red Rose, and The title of J.D. Salinger's novel, The Catcher in the Rye, is based on Burns' poem, Coming Through the Rye. Later this hour, we'll listen to an Atlanta-based descendant of Robbie Burns. Hamish Caldwell will describe Burns' Day celebrations and customs. Plus, a preview of New World. Georgia Women to Watch, the new exhibition on view at Atlanta Contemporary. First, in 1995, Karen Abbott adapted John Steptoe's award-winning children's book, Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters, for the stage. Now, there's a new musical adaptation of the beloved book at Synchronicity Theater. Director and choreographer Taryn Janelle and composer and music director Laurel Ross join me via Zoom, along with Buila Steptoe, daughter of the late author John Steptoe. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Taryn and Laurel, would you please tell us about your first encounter with this book before creating the musical? Oh, certainly. Well, my first encounter was as a child. I was born a few years before the book came out. So by the time I was of reading age, it was a part of our library. My family, my mom and my aunt in particular, especially at that time, they were, they really wanted me to read books by Black authors. This one had, it had to be a part of the catalog. 
And what a fine one it was. Laurel, when did you first hear of the book? Yeah, very similar growing up as a child as well. So my mother was really, really, really big on us reading, reading and using our imagination. And so in our house growing up, our porch had a built-in bookshelf and it had tons of books, novels and fiction, nonfiction, things like that. And one of the books that was a prize book for my sisters to read was Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. And so I have very vivid memories of my mom sharing the book with my sisters. And if my mom was reading the book to us, just being there for that. And also just the beautiful, beautiful illustrations that was coupled with such a beautiful story. So it, it and hearing about doing Mufaro's Daughter, it almost unlocked the memory from way, way, way back in my childhood. And how did you decide to adapt it for this stage? Did Synchronicity Theater approach you or was this your own labor of love? Essentially, Rachel May, who is the Artistic Director of Synchronicity, and I already worked together. I am also on staff at Synchronicity as the Director of Education. So having conversations about books and about, you know, the shows coming up for the next season, Rachel presented this to me. And and at that time, it was, you know, clearly not a musical. It was, um, it had been produced most recently as a play with music. So we looked at that and she got in contact with Guila. But my understanding of that conversation, just the the dreams of what could could be with it. And then she brought that to me and and I said, yeah, I, I think this could be a musical and a very good one at that. So we looked at the original material and decided what of that we may or may not be able to use. And we spoke to Guila about our ideas. In the meantime, I have gotten with Laurel, who has worked with me. We work together as director and music director for Three Little Birds uh, not too long ago, and had already spoken about the fact that Rel composes music and had become friends. So as Rachel was having her conversations with Wheela, I was having mine with Laurel. And by the time Rachel and I came back together, we kind of had a plan of action, if, it, if you will, to move forward. Wonderful. Well, we've been talking about the book. Would one of you give us a brief synopsis of the story? Yes, it's been compared to or associated with the the Cinderella story. So it's the African Cinderella story is af- actually an African folktale that my father was inspired by and influenced by and created his his version of the story and in in his liking so basically two sisters live with their father in the village in africa in zimbabwe and their king is looking for a wife and the most beautiful and most worthy so it just tells the story of how the two sisters make their way to meet the king with exciting adventures. Now, your father was a brilliant children's book illustrator as well as author. Yes. Before publishing his books, did he test out the stories (laughs) or the pictures with you and your brother? Yes. I had a torturous life of... of being a critic of his... The, the, the stories as well as 
the illustrations. And I would I always say that he's an artist first before anything, before a writer. He's definitely an artist. Well, I get, a writer is an artist, but what I'm saying is a visual artist. Like my father went to art and design high school in New York City, and he has been drawing since he was a young child. And so I vividly remember Mufaro's because he, after dinner, we went on a walk. Like we, we went to St. John the Divine in um, Manhattan. We lived in Manhattan. And he pulled out a pad and was like, hey, I got a new story. And we were like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and because we, you know, when you grow up with an artist, you don't think it's a big deal and you don't think it's a big deal. Like, you know, you just think it's a regular thing that everybody goes through these things. So we weren't like excited in the sense of, as we, it was a normal part of our life. So he pulled this story out and he read it. We liked it. And we said, yeah, it sounds good. And he was very excited because this was the first time that he was creating a fairy tale. Most of the stories that he's created have been the majority of family life or stories about his relationships with his families or his perception of how he viewed us at times. But this one was a fantasy and it was part of a fairy tale. So he was excited about that. And he also loved St. John the Divine. That's actually where his ashes are because of the architecture. So it was it was quite fitting. And now when I really think about it, it's quite fitting that he uh, shared that story with us in front of St. John's Divine. If anyone's ever seen it, the architecture is beautiful. And so it's almost, I mean, it's like, it's like a castle, right? And then the story is a Cinderella story. And where does Cinderella live in a castle, right? <laughs> so it, it's just, it's very fitting, but that's how we learned about it. And, and he would often have my, uh, not just me, but my brother and my family members model for him and pose for him. And so like the, the torturous part was, you know, you're playing, you're busy playing and he interrupts you and tells you to come here, hold this, <laughs> stand like this, move like that, act like you're happy. And my famous story is me being in Central Park, him telling me to come to Central Park because he needs to take pictures for the book and having to have a sheet, a bed sheet wrapped around me <gasps> in the middle of Central Park to, you know, and act like the characters. So when he, he told me to act angry, I could, that was easy because I was embarrassed, you know, being in the park. But when he was like, now be, be happy. And I'm like, Ugh. but, you know, I appreciate it now. Oh, I can imagine. But how old were you at that time? I was 12 yeah. years old and I had my best friend with me and she thought it was oh. funny. So it was like, seriously, that. No <laughs> doubt. But how beautiful to be that inspiration. There are two daughters in the book. Did you relate to one daughter more than the other? My famous words for that is depending on the day you get me. So and because <laughs> everyone asks me that question a lot. Now I really realize that why my father did that, because those probably are, well, I wouldn't say probably, I, those are sides that he sees in me, or he saw in me, I think, with, with both sisters, things that he, and that's just coming to me now, like those are the things that he saw with me 
in me and my personality. And so he, I think he split them in two. And it's kind of funny that I had twins after, like, not after that, but like in my lifetime to have daughters. Oh, that was special. (laughs) Now, how do you think he would have reacted to move Faro's beautiful daughters being turned into a musical? I think he would be very excited. I remember for Christmas, one Christmas, we went to go see Peter Pan on Broadway. And that was exciting. That was very exciting. And he was excited. And I I remember after Peter Pan, he skipped down the street singing, I'll never grow up. So, (laughs) (laughs) So to have his own story, you know, something that he actually created, turned into a play and, you know, for you know, and, and have another way for people to see it all around the world would definitely excite him and make him happy and proud and feel accomplished, like he did another thing. <laughs> if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with director and choreographer Taryn Janelle and composer, music director, Laurel Ross. We've been discussing Synchronicity Theater's upcoming production of Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters. Also joining us is Buila Steptoe, daughter of the author and illustrator, John Steptoe. Taryn, Laurel, would you talk about the collaborative process of turning Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters into a musical? Well, it started with the book and with with Blila. We had a really great first conversation with her to get a lot of the background that she's kind of given today and even more, you know, just kind of context around the story and where John's head was at when he was writing it and Blila's experience during that time. And so we really tried to do a, a fair amount of research and not just incorporate like John's spirit, I guess, his legacy into the script, but also understanding that he looked at his work as a really input, his research work as a really important component to the story. We went back and did our own research on Zimbabwe and the languages spoken there and the rhythms and the sounds that you would hear in that part of the world. So that's kind of where we started. And then uh, we just came into a room and and started playing together. One of the things that we really wanted to make sure that we did in creating this adaptation was making sure that we kept the integrity of not only uh, John Steps Toe's idea with the story, but also the place where it takes place, you know, the setting and making sure that some of the languages we use and some of the ideas that we use uh, lined up well with the country of Zimbabwe and neighboring areas in Zimbabwe. And so we gave a real authentic, as much as we could, an authentic creation that blended the two worlds of the story to music theater together. And I think we did it in a wonderful way. Uh, one of the things that we were really, really big about researching is some of the different sayings and just wisdom of uh, the areas in, of Zimbabwe. And honestly, the first song, our opening song came from a Zimbabwe saying that we found that simply says, if you can talk, you can sing. And if you can walk, you can dance. And it was from that that we created our opening song. And really from there, 
our spin on uh, Mufaro himself and giving that character a personality came from that. And so that was really the catalyst for all of the music that we created. And it, uh, it was such an enjoyable process. And now being in the, uh, in the position of music directing with while Taryn is directing and putting these characters and these personifications onto these actors has uh, really come away in a really beautiful way to bring the story alive in a way that I'm not sure that it has been before. Being able to know that we would be on the production side of it later, directing and music directing, it really gave us a view during the creation process that helped us to kind of line things up together. Like it, it was not just about the storytelling, but just like the functional, how, how is this story told was also in the room too, which has made our production process go so much more smoothly now. Oh, how gorgeous. That saying is such inspiration. If you can talk, you can sing, and if you can walk, you can dance. Is it possible to share your favorite songs from the show? <laughs> I will actually let Taryn begin because <laughs> she has a she has a song that she feels very, very strongly about that's her favorite. And so I'll let her talk about that one first. I do. My favorite song is also sung by Mufaro. It is And Then. And uh, it comes right after, you know, if you know the Cinderella story, you know that the royals are going into the villages and telling them that they're going to be able to go see the king. And uh, in our story, uh, Nyasha just is not really feeling that. She, she likes where she is and she doesn't have any aspirations to be the queen. And so we really kind of had to sit with that moment, right? In, in the story, she clearly ends up going. So how do you create a feel that doesn't make it seem like she's being forced but that she still has some autonomy because, because again, synchronicity is a theater that uplifts the voices of women and girls. So we sat with that moment a lot to say how, how, where is Niasha's voice in this, in this moment, knowing that there's a bit of duty behind it. And what we came up with was the concept of, and then just don't be afraid to, to broaden your horizons and think about what may happen in the future. You know, we might go do this thing, but, and then something else may happen and something else may happen and it might shift your, your worldview. I think mine was happening at the same time that we were writing, my, my worldview was shifting and it just, it really speaks to where I was and where I think Niasha's voice kind of comes into this whole story. Mm. And Laurel, is the first song your favorite or is there another? No, not quite. And you know what? It's a fluid choice. And it definitely changed as we were going from one song to the next song. It definitely became like, this is my favorite. And then we moved to the next song. This is my favorite. <laughs> but I think if I had to settle on one now that everything is complete, it would have to be the song or more, more or less the idea of the journey. Um, and so in the story, um, both sisters go on a journey where they're tested. They have a few trials. And so that song, we found another Zimbabwe saying that in English translates to who you are, who you choose to be becomes your destiny, right? And so in composing this song, I wanted to make sure that the fact that it is something that is serious and something that is a test or trial could be felt musically as well as heard through the lyrics. And so 
I, we did something interesting where, our, where the song is written in a time signature that is uncommon. It's written in a 10-8 time signature. And so in some places it makes you feel like if you're not tentative, you're gonna miss a beat and you'll find yourself lost. And I felt that it played so well with the journey for these two daughters and their trials. Mm. Buila, how did Mufaro's beautiful daughters spark your dad's love for his African heritage and roots? My father he felt like he had a duty to share his African heritage with the world. So I think for him, it was a duty of always showing and inventing new ways to show children how important we are. Because growing up in the 50s, the children's books he had, he didn't see any people that looked like him and anyone that he could relate to. So he wanted to make sure that the children got to see and have more knowledge of who they are and, and how they are important. And he was elevating African pride also in bringing traditional African folk tales to the Western world. So an added layer of not only enabling African-American children to see themselves in a story, but pride in one's roots. Definitely. And I think that's why he made sure that every animal, every plant, every tree, everything in the book was from Zimbabwe. He made sure that it was authentic to the story so that he knew what he was talking about, right? And so no one could come and say, oh, that's that's not from Zimbabwe. Or, you know, like you said, it was all about pride and making sure that when you're presenting something, you're presenting it in the proper manner so that you get the results that you want to convey. Taryn Lorel, would you please tell us about Synchronicity Theater's partnership during this production with Fathers Incorporated and Drama Mama Reads? Both organizations will be coming to different productions of the show so that we can uh, just highlight the love or, or the importance of parents sharing their love of reading with their children. Fathers Incorporated will be able to do a book reading, which we actually do in between each of the weekday shows on a Saturday and Sunday. And um, we'll be doing a reading of Mufaro's Beautiful Daughters with the group and also allowing them to come in and having just a little bit of a talk back after the show about the show and then the, about the book as well. Mm. Finally, why is the message of Mufaro's beautiful daughter so timeless? I consider the show to be about choices. All of the characters have have choices in front of them, and uh, it's like that fork in the road every every time. What what are you going to do, and how does that reflect on on you and on your path moving forward? I think that that simple little phrase, you know, who you are, who you choose to be, becomes your destiny is very much the theme of, of the show. And it will, it will never get old. That is, that is the theme that will, that will be around as long as people are making choices. Director and choreographer Taryn Chanel, 
with composer and music director Laurel Ross. They were joined by John Steptoe's daughter, Wheela Steptoe, Mufaro's beautiful daughters, an African tale is on stage at Synchronicity Theater from January 27th through February 19th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll celebrate Burns Night with poetry readings from Hamish Caldwell. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz. It's great to have you along. Today, January 25th, we honor the national hero of Scotland, poet Robert Burns. Born on this date in 1759, Burns is celebrated by Scots throughout the world with a Burns Night Supper. In 2016, my friend and Glasgow native Hamish Caldwell stopped by the WABE studios to recite a few works by the Scottish poet. Here, Hamish explains why Robbie Burns' legacy is so extraordinary. Because he speaks to all of us about so many really powerful things. Love, passion, humanity. And I think the global audience resonates with those themes. So he's a man for all seasons and for all countries. And how fortunate are we to have in the form of a direct Indeed. descendant of the part himself? That would be you, Hamish. It would be. He's my great, great Great, great, great grandfather. And I'm here to tell you the resemblance <laughs> is striking. It's quite striking. Well, tell us, if you will, how a Burns Night celebration unfolds. Mm. Ah, that is such a wonderful occasion. And actually, for a Burns supper, you're going to wear your Sunday best. So probably a velvet jacket with a very nice... Uh, n not a, a workaday kilt, but a nice, more brightly coloured celebratory kilt, such as you'd wear at a wedding. And of course, you'll have your knee-high socks on and ski-and-do 
And explain, please, what that is. Well, in today's day and age, it probably will be used as a letter opener because it basically looks like one. It's a little <laughs> dagger. But oh. in the old days, they were used to hunt and kill haggis. That is central to a Burns celebration. It is. It is. In fact, Robbie Burns wrote mm. an address to a haggis and I was hoping you would read it for us. Oh, if you have a copy there, I would be happy to. Fair for your honest sonsy face, great chieftain o' the puddin' race. Aboon them a', yet tack your place, pench, tripe or thern. Weel are ye wordy, o' a grace, as lang's my arm. The groaning trencher there ye fill, your hurdies like a distant hill. Your pin was helped to mend a mill, in time o' need, whilst throw your pores the dews distill, like amber bead. His knife see rustic labour dight, and cut you up wee ready slight, trenching your gushing entrails bright like ony ditch. And then, oh, what a glorious sight, warm, reeking, rich. Then horn for horn they stretch and strive, deal take the hindmost on they drive, till all their wheel-swalled kites bell thee, are bent like drums, then old good man mayst like to reeve, Ben Thacket hums. Is there that o'er his French ragout, or olio that wad staw a sow, or fricassee, wad make her spew, we perfect sconner looks down we sneering scornfu view on sick a dinner? Poor devil, see him o'er his trash, as feckles as withered rash. His spindle shank, a good whip lash, his neva knit, through bloody flood or field to dash, oh how unfit. But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread. Clap in his wally, neva blade, we'll make it whistle, and legs and arms and hands will sned like taps o' trissel. You powers wha mak mankind your care, and dish them out their bill o' fare. Old Scotland wants nae skinking ware that jumps and luggies. But if ye wish your grateful prayer, gie her a haggis. <laughs> that was <laughs> wonderful. Well, listening to you read the address to the haggis, it's so wonderful to hear the lilt and the melody mm. of the Scots dialect. How important is that to appreciating the words of Robbie Burns? I think the sound and the rhythm does come across when you hear it in the old Scots, as people would call this. So there is apparently part of the rhyme. And I think his word choice is incredibly well selected. And of course, in a verse, it strings together and has a momentum about it. And I think those intangibles are part of what reinforces his effectiveness as a writer that still speaks to people today, like we were saying earlier, around the world. Because there's not just the sound of the words, but they're very grounded in the earth and they have a connection to each other and to the themes that they're expressing. And I think that then reaches the ears and heart of us all. And these are recurring themes throughout his work. Indeed. Give us some more examples, please. Now, this one 
is a little favourite of mine, and I'd like to dedicate it to my wonderful wife, Dahlia. Aww. My Bonnie Bell by Robert Burns from 1791. The smiling spring comes in rejoicing, and surely winter grimly flies. Now crystal clear are the falling waters, and bonny blue are the sunny skies. Fresh o'er the mountains breaks forth the morning, the evening gilds the ocean's swell, all creatures joy in the sun's returning, and I rejoice in my bonny bell. The flowery spring leads sunny summer, the yellow autumn presses near, then in his turn comes a gloomy winter, till smiling spring again appear. Thus seasons dancing, life advancing, old time and nature their changes tell. But never ranging, still unchanging, I adore my Bonnie Belle. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. But I think ultimately it's the romantic Scotland uh-huh. that people love, and that's why we're celebrating Burns Night. And I was hoping you would read some of the romantic poetry in addition to your Bonnie Bell. Okay, let me see. What do we have? Ah, how about this? My heart's in the Highlands. Farewell to the Highlands, farewell to the North the birthplace of valour, the country of worth. Wherever I wander, wherever I rove, the hills of the highlands forever I love. Farewell to the mountains high covered with snow, farewell to the straths and green valleys below, farewell to the forests and wild hanging woods, farewell to the torrents and loud pouring floods. My heart's in the highlands, my heart is not here, My heart's in the highlands, a-chasing the deer, chasing the wild deer and following the roe. My heart's in the highlands, wherever I go. (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. (laughs) Well, we have to wrap up our celebration. Well, it's wonderful. Thank you for sharing the birthday cake of of Rabbi, Rabbi Burns today. The shortbread scrumptious. Mm. Hamish Caldwell, thank you very much. My pleasure, Lois. Thank you very much. Glasgow native Hamish Caldwell from our 2016 conversation. More information about Burns Night is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll hear about the new exhibition at Atlanta Contemporary, New Worlds, Georgia Women to Watch. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. Is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Through a highly competitive process, works of five emerging Georgia women artists have been chosen for the exhibition New Worlds, Georgia Women to Watch, on view at 
Atlantic Contemporary from January 27th through June 4th. From varied and diverse backgrounds, these artists find common ground in contemplating an uncertain future during a time of cultural, political, and environmental change. The exhibition, organized by the Georgia Committee of the National Museum of Women in the Arts, explores how our societal conditions have impacted each artist's visions for the future or inspired them to create alternative realities. New World's co-curators Melissa Messina and Sierra King join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so much for having us. This program is designed to increase the visibility of promising women artists. What's your take on why women are underrepresented in art? Um, maybe I'll kick it off to say that the art historical narrative has been very geared toward male, predominantly very Eurocentric male artists. And I think that is something that culture has recognized needs a correction, that there are too many incredible working artists who are women or female identifying or have been through history. And so we really are in a moment of reclamation where we're looking at who has been left out of the conversation and what their contributions really add to the fuller picture of what art history truly is. Sierra? Yeah, I think in this time of reclamation, um, it's a matter of filling in the gaps. So just understanding that the history that was written was written in that particular time, but also going back and filling in the, the historical gaps saying these women were here at this time and this time and this time, and really providing a full perspective of how women uh, have always been involved in art and in art history. How were the diverse women in this exhibition balanced in terms of representation? I appreciate that question very much. And it's something that Sierra and I thought about a great deal, um, not only because of the theme of the show, but when you're selecting five artists from the bounty of incredible women working in this state, we really did want to think consciously about representation. And I think for the five that we've chosen, we, we've done a pretty good job. There's a, a range of diverse backgrounds and not just nationalities, but also age and where they're coming from, where they're working in Georgia as well. So what can you tell us about the artists in the show and what each brings to the table? I, I know each is very accomplished. If you could give us just a snapshot, a short bio or description of each of them and their works. Well, I'll say firstly that Sierra and I, in thinking about how to conceive of an exhibition where each artist was creating their own world, 
we decided to select five artists who had an installation-based practice. And while each of them are very diverse in those practices, what they're saying, what their imagery is representing, what materials they're using, we felt like that would make a really interesting show that these artists are not only pushing the boundaries of the the query, uh, the, the thematic arch of the show, but also that they were pushing the boundaries of their medium. So there are artists who are dealing with light, there are artists who are dealing with sound, there are artists who are pushing the boundaries of what landscape painting can be, what figure painting can be, what sculpture looks like. And so there really is a, a rounding out of experiences, what Sierra and I have been describing as worlds within worlds for this show. I should take a step back. How was the theme for this year selected? The theme was given to us by uh, the Georgia committee. It's the overall uh, theme that was that the national exhibition is also uh, tackling. Um, And so each of the regional committees were tasked with that as well. And so me and Melissa were more so taxed with investigating uh, that particular theme of new worlds and how not only that the artists were creating new worlds in their practices over their over time, but also how they were looking at how they wanted to create a world for themselves outside of their practices and how their art making uh, influenced that. So historically, this exhibition, it is um, a biennial and I think has somehow turned into a triennial because of because of COVID, uh, this iteration. But the theme, as Sierra mentioned, is charged, you know, comes from the charge of the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, D.C. And historically, it has been kind of material based. There was a show several years ago of women who are working in paper, for example. So this is the first iteration where the museum in DC decided to really tackle a more complex theme. So it was a really fun project to and and query to dive into. Is it possible for you to tell us a bit about each of the artists whose works are on view and what each brings to the table? Yeah. Anila Kwamega, she's from Augusta, and she works in a a light-based installation medium. And so her work is really dealing with not only light, but the structure that is encapsulating the light. So you may have previously seen seen her work exhibited in uh, forms of pyramids, in forms of like House house structures, or almost a three D lit aluminum, and then Namwon Choi's her work is dealing with distance travel and navigation, mostly in the medium of paint, and she uses that across different structural forms of presentation. So while some of the visual part of it is based in 2D, she's also moved that into uh, different spherical figures, different just 3D models of what that can be. And so it gives that kind of dimension, not only to the the world that she's kind of repainting, but also allows you to kind of uh, navigate it walking around or being able to interpret it in different ways. Uh, And then Victoria Duggar, 
She is working in uh, mixed media and also textiles. And so her work is kind of tackling the interiority of what it means to be a Black woman. And uh, so you see some of her, dis not uh, disoriented, but kind of the figure that she's working with doesn't necessarily come across as a human figure, but more so uh, one that is like of the mind. And so in her interiority, she's also thinking about the domesticity of a, of a woman and different milestones that, that women may have come across in their lives, such as birthdays or, or holidays, or even the introspective of like the everyday of looking into a mirror. Shaniqua Gay, uh, she's always been just a wonder to to look at her work as far as the fantastical aspect of it, but also thinking about how Black women have been these griots and devouts of, of their time, kind of like an overarching theme of this grandiose figure and thought being embedded in a community and kind of leading that community in their practices as far as like creating community and also just the the visual of, of sisterhood and how women cultivate that within, within themselves, but also that fantastical feature. So she really gives a landscape to what that looks like, not only in our now, but what a future could look like. And then Mariana Dixon Williamson, she her work is also kind of rooted in navigation of her, like, not only her own personal life, but the personal lives of LGBTQIA people and how going back into your own narrative or revisiting steps or revisiting journals and letters can kind of uh, encapsulate not only who you are, but who you want to become. And so within the show, she's kind of, she's being able to present this retrospective of her travels and how that has become a personal becoming of herself and kind of building that world within inside of her own interiority in the exterior world of where we live as well. Now, from this Georgia exhibition, one artist will be chosen for an exhibition at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, that's slated for spring of 2024 in D.C. How is the final selection determined? Well, luckily for us, it is determined by the curators in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and I don't envy that job because there are committees all over the country um, that are affiliated with the museum who are hosting similar exhibitions. So one artist from each of the shows will be, as you said, chosen for the DC exhibition. And there's just so much great work to choose from. Um, like I said, I, I don't envy their, their job there. That's a, that's a tough one. I, I'm eager to hear from each of you if this is not too sweeping a question. When women artists envision a different world, how do you think that differs from other perspectives? I think because women and people who identify as women are the ones that 
bring life into the world are really a decision maker or should be the decision makers on how the world around them is cultivated. And so when you center the woman, she's already had in mind a future that she wants to bring life into that into that world. And so I think not only as artists, but as as women who are who are navigating that question, it comes up we're constantly thinking about a future that's affected by our now, which it has many different intersections as far as like climate, as far as like what we do with our bodies, as far as health and and mindset, and just really understanding that like all of these intersections and all these things that we have to navigate on the daily basis and our choices that we make on the daily basis affect not only the output of like creating in our practice as artists, but also affect if we in fact to make that choice to create another life. I will add that the five artists in this show, you know, we were struck by, as Sierra alluded to, this sort of interior and exterior landscape, both of the physical environment and the personal body. And I think those are themes that women have dealt with in art throughout time. And to see these five women looking at the future, they are also taking into account the wrongs and ills of the past. So there are these interesting paradoxes throughout the show and that sort of interior world and how that affects the exterior world was really a strong sort of theme that we were seeing in a lot of women's work and and looking at a cyclical sense of time, right? Again, kind of looking to the past to help steward a better future. Melissa Messina and Sierra King are co-curators of New World's Georgia Women to Watch on view at Atlanta Contemporary from January 27th through June 4th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Mardi Gras right around the corner, and Atlanta is celebrating almost a month early. The Latta Gras Parade and Festival kicks off in Kirkwood on January 28th. Founder and president of Latta Gras, Andy Green, shares how it got started in 2016. At the heart of its inception was really community. We just love our neighborhood. Kirkwood and East Lake are really diverse neighborhoods, and we wanted to build a community event that all residents were, were welcome, it's free, and not only welcome, we wanted those residents to participate and become part of the parade. Uh, another part of it was we also wanted to support our local businesses, which is why the parade ends in our little downtown Kirkwood area. Another part is we wanted to not only bring that community together, but we also wanted to have a shared smile, if you will, uh, bring them together and celebrate together, celebrate life, celebrate music, celebrate food, and uh, celebrate each other. And then I think that goes to, to building a stronger community. Uh, when you have an event, you have a, you know, you create opportunities for people to live and love together. You know, that group becomes stronger as you go along. 
Latagra is also a nonprofit organization. They provide music scholarships and instruments to local kids who are passionate about playing but don't have the funds to do so. More than 30 kids have received private music lessons since the organization began. Saturday's parade begins at 1 p.m. in Bessie Branham Park and ends in downtown Kirkwood. Once we get downtown Kirkwood, we leave all the Mardi Gras floats and the crews lined up in the street. So it's almost like a, a parade in place where we have bands and, you know, and live music, and some of which are on the floats, will continue to play. After the floats arrive downtown, the festival portion begins. We're also going to have feature musicians. We'll have the Waste of Potential Brass Band. We'll have a local artist uh, named Tulani, who uh, plays a harp like a rock star. She's amazing. We're also going to have our headlining band, which is the Mike Foster Project, an incredibly talented band out of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So you really don't want to miss them. More information is on their website, latagraparade.com. I invite you to join me this evening at 6 for a special event at the Temple on Peachtree Street. I'll moderate a panel of distinguished guests discussing Ken Burns' PBS series, The United States and the Holocaust. Admission is free. That's beginning at 6 p.m. today at the Temple, 1589 Peachtree Street, Northeast. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.